You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. And welcome to another edition of the Domecast, our weekly look back and ahead on all things in government and politics in North Carolina. I'm Andy Curlis with the News and Observer. We have a great show for you. The legislature took the week off, but we didn't. And we will hear from Michael Bitzer, a professor at Catawba College. Many of you follow him on Twitter or hear from him. Uh, an astute observer of politics in North Carolina. An interesting conversation coming up with him. And, of course, our headliners of the week. But first, let's have a conversation with Colin Campbell of the News and Observer, who was following one of the big stories of the week, uh, something uh, sort of obscure but important, and that is uh, something called tax districts. Colin Campbell, who you can find at Raleigh Reporter, on Twitter. Tell us about tax districts and, and what what's going on with those. Yeah, so this is a provision in state law that basically allows uh, cities and towns to form what's called municipal service districts. And it basically means that you can take a chunk of your town and say the property tax is going to be a little bit higher in this part of town. And we'll use that to fund one of a couple of things. There, there are three things that can fund. One is uh, downtown development. And that's the bulk of it. Almost 50 uh, communities around the state have this tax on their downtown commercial district that allows them to fund uh, special events and marketing and the sort of stuff that sort of uh, drives the downtown revitalization that so many uh, communities in North Carolina have been pushing hard for. There's also a beach tax uh, known as the sand tax where a beach community can say, well, the folks uh, who are on the front row that they've got oceanfront property, they should be paying more than everybody else to renourish the beach every few years when you know it erodes and we need to truck in a bunch of new sand. So they've got that sort of tiered tax structure through that. And then there's a third kind, and this is the least common kind, uh, where it's a historic neighborhood that essentially uses the tax to function as a homeowners association, where they have that money and they use it to put up you know historically appropriate street lamps and some other things that if you lived in a newer subdivision, you'd probably have an HOA to handle. And that last portion is where the controversy seems to have come up. In Greensboro, there's a neighborhood that's uh, looking for a way to get rid of this extra tax. They've gone to their state senator, Trudy Wade, who has put in this statewide provision uh, within the Senate budget that would allow uh, a referendum via petition for residents of these tax districts to uh, essentially do away with the tax district. And the big concern is that when you're not in a neighborhood area, you're either at a beach community where most people don't actually live there, or you're in a downtown where most of the property is commercial. And in some of these towns, you may have three or four residents in a downtown area if it's really a commercial district. Then those po- folks have the power to do away with the tax, while the folks paying the majority of the tax, the business owners, the property owners of commercial interest, um, don't have a say in this referendum process. So that's been a big controversy uh, as part of the Senate budget, and part that just came out within the last week or so as people started to dig into the meat of this 500-page budget bill. And so, uh, as you say, this wasn't a separate uh, bill that had been getting a lot of debate. It's uh, you're, you're telling me it's embedded in the budget. Yeah, somewhere uh, 300 pages in or so, so it didn't get any sort of discussion during the Senate's original budget debate. Everyone was focused on the, you know, the big picture items of education and uh, spending and that sort of thing. Um, 
And when I talked to Senator Wade, she said her reasoning for doing this this way rather than running a separate bill is that the bill filing deadline had passed before she heard the concerns from folks in this uh, Greensboro neighborhood. And so she felt like this was the best way to to get this done this session. But that means that these other folks are crying foul saying, you know, can't we have a normal debate on this as a bill? Can't we be informed about this ahead of time rather than having to, you know, hear second or third hand that this is somewhere within the budget? Mm-hmm. And so that has led to some interesting stories uh, over the past week. And you mentioned the sponsor of that provision, uh, Trudy Wade, also in the news, uh, Greensboro uh, City Council. Is that right? That yeah. she, she was the one that was really uh, behind that. Yeah, she's been taking a lot of heat uh, in Guilford County and to some extent across the state for a bill that uh, redistricts the Greensboro City Council. The opponents say, look, this is a you're trying to get more Republicans on the Greensboro City Council. You're going to double bunk a bunch of the incumbents so that they have to run against each other. And as a result, you may reduce the minority um, representation on the council. She says it's a way to uh, by going to a more district based system rather than having at large members that uh you know, different groups can feel like they're better represented on the Greensboro Council, but that's now going to a lawsuit. Uh, as of this week, the uh, current Greensboro City Council held a, a really massive public hearing a couple days ago, uh, heard from folks, and has uh, decided that they are going to sue over this. Um, of course, all this begs the question of uh, will other communities be affected this way? Obviously, we've already seen the, the Wake County Commission uh, more locally uh, get redistricted this session, and there have been similar ones in sessions past. Um, and you talked to uh, some of the Wake County lawmakers who th- did not express interest in sort of going further than the, the what they've already done. Yeah, you know, my question this week was, you know, is Raleigh next? Because Raleigh, much like Greensboro, has a system where you've got part of your city council is elected within a specific geographical district. About half part of them are at-large members. Uh, and so the same arguments, to my mind, could be made to change Raleigh as to change Greensboro. But the two uh, state senators who are Republicans and represent portions of Raleigh, Chad Barefoot and John Alexander, they both supported the Greensboro bill. But when I asked them about Raleigh, they said they haven't heard any concerns from residents of Raleigh, constituents who want to see it changed. They have no plans to make any similar changes here locally. And, of course, Governor McCrory has weighed in on this issue, a former mayor of Charlotte, uh, essentially trying to make the argument. Of course, you may have heard him last week on the Domecast uh, talking about this, uh, that that really um, he wants uh, Raleigh to, to stop meddling in these uh, types of local issues, but uh, of course that uh, that will be up to the lawmakers. And so let's uh, take a break, and we'll come back with a recorded interview uh, with Michael Bitzer, a uh, uh, professor at Catawba College, and we'll hear from him as we come uh, out of a break. Hi, I'm Bruce Hornsby. You know the expression, practice makes perfect? Well, it certainly is true in music. And practicing music is one of the most valuable ways a student can spend his time or her time. A young person who studies music reinforces teamwork, communication skills, self-discipline, and creativity. All qualities kids need to be successful in their other schoolwork. Parents, think about encouraging your kids to try out several instruments at school until they find the one that they really like, the one that really clicks for them. Get to know the school's music teacher and encourage your child to join school music ensembles. And please don't forget that your kids all have an instrument that's free and sounds wonderful, their voices. A PSA brought to you by the National Association for Music Education. 
And welcome back to the Domecast. We wanted to catch up with Michael Bitzer, a professor at Catawba College and astute observer of politics and government in North Carolina. And we recorded an interview with him, caught up with him by phone. And we started out by uh, talking about uh, Governor McCrory and the legislature. Take a listen. Dr. Bitzer, thank you for being with us. It's an honor to be with you. Thanks very much for inviting me. And so we thought that uh, it might be fun. We've had a slow week. Of course, the legislature has taken a break uh, on vacation, and so it's a good time to sort of take a pause, take a deep breath, if you will, and reflect on some of the different topics going on I know that you're interested in, and many of our listeners are. And, of course, the, the big one of the whole session with the legislature has been, uh, in some way, how uh, Governor Pat McCrory is relating uh, with this uh, legislature. And I just wonder, sort of, what are you seeing there? How has that played out? And, uh, you know, how might it factor into some of the political uh, goings-on as we move forward here into budget uh, negotiations? Sure. Well, certainly, you know, we have unified party government under Republican control, but unified party govern government doesn't necessarily mean there's complete unity. Uh, we know that the Republican Party is made up of different factions, certainly the Tea Party faction, uh, fiscal conservatives, social conservatives, evangelical voters, and you're more kind of maybe moderate Main Street uh, establishment kind of Republicans. And I think what you're seeing play out are all those different factions found within the General Assembly, particularly for conservatives within the state Senate. But you've also got somebody in the governor's mansion that is probably, you know, trying to portray himself a little bit more moderately. Uh, coming from Charlotte, Pat McCrory as mayor had to appeal to an increasingly democratic-oriented city. And I think that really framed how he looks at politics and tries to be the moderate, the, the uh, person trying to seek the, the best common ground. But you've got a legislature, particularly state senate, that is much more conservative uh, and really has an agenda that they're seeking to, to put forward. And that's naturally going to create tensions whenever you separate power among different players in the game of politics. Yeah, and, and so we've uh, obviously are seeing that play out on the budget and several other uh, issues. Uh, and, and, and is this one of those where, uh, I mean, it just will have to get hammered out in, in good old-fashioned negotiating? I, I think definitely. I think the budget, I think the issue of economic development, uh, I think the bonds package, you know, a lot of uh, big-ticket items that uh, the governor laid out and wanted some quick action on has really kind of gotten slowed down by the legislature. And I think the, the big fights typically are about budgeting, about spending. That creates the priorities that government is going to be invested in. And I think, you know, last week's Domecast showed that the governor was starting to get 
get a little frustrated with his colleagues uh, on Jones Street and is is laying down some markers. I think the the issue about the sales tax redistribution that's going to be a very interesting one to watch and see if there is any negotiation over that issue. I think that'll kind of start sending the signal of where the budget is headed. And of course, we will be watching and uh, seeing how that plays out. Uh, If you were able to listen, you know that uh, the governor said he doesn't really think about the next election. He's just worried about governing. But of course, he will have to stand for uh, re-election. And so all of this will factor into that. It's fair to say, right? Oh, most definitely. I mean, any first-term elected official always wants a second term. And so while he's putting forward the face of trying to govern and administer, I think there is always lurking in the background the conditions and the issues that he's going to be able to take out onto the campaign trail next year in any re-election bid. And, of course, speaking of elections, uh, the other big one, that uh, already is generating a lot of conversation is the U.S. Senate race, uh, a seat now held by Richard Burr. And it seems the Democrats are having uh, difficulty finding someone to challenge him. It, it really is surprising. I think, you know, if, if you look at next year's ballot for the November election, you've basically got the big three here in North Carolina. You've got a presidential race that, again, all indications seem to be a very close one. North Carolina will be another presidential battleground state. You've already got the governor's race lining up between the Attorney General Roy Cooper and we expect a re-election bid by Governor McCrory. This third one, the U.S. Senate race is kind of interesting because there is no real prominent Democrat that's been able to uh, capture the attention. Now, granted, it is early, but some movement has to start occurring probably here late summer, early fall, of folks thinking about tossing their hat into the ring. But uh, even as you think about who that is, you see some of the pollsters are sort of throwing names out there. Uh, But there just isn't a lot of coalescing uh, around a candidate right now. There, there really isn't, and I think a lot of that has to do certainly with name recognition and name ID. I mean, if you look at some of the folks that have been mentioned, uh, Dan Blue, for example, a lot of uh, state legislators, Heath Schuler from uh, the western part of the state, uh, Mike McIntyre from down east. I think that a lot of this is because of the statewide nature of the race. And even Richard Burr has kind of in the mid-30s approval, disapproval, and unknowing uh, or, or unknown in terms of his approval ratings. So there really hasn't been the coalescing of energy and attention that the public generally tends to focus, unlike at the presidential or even the gubernatorial level. And so if you're Richard Burr, do you feel really good right now, or is it, well, we'll wait and see? I think it is partly a wait and see, but certainly he had the advantage the last time he ran in 2010, he had the Tea Party Revolution, and it was really something that uh, propelled him and gave him a very comfortable win against Elaine Marshall. What I think generally tends to happen is we have two different types of elections, midterm elections, which 2010 was, and a presidential election in 2016, very different electorates in this state. And that's going to be the key thing to kind of watch and see how that plays out.
And of course we will. Uh, one of the things you do uh, pay close attention to is the demographics, the makeup of the electorate. And I know you study those uh, numbers uh, closely. Uh, I wonder if you might give us some insight in what you see and what, uh, you know, what kind of trends are developing on uh, who the voters are and, 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 the, and the makeup of the electorate. Well, one of the big questions that, that we're starting to hear more and more about is this generational change that's occurring, not just within the electorate, but within the population of the country as a whole. The, the rise of the millennials, those folks born after 1980, are really starting to shape the way the country responds and, and acts, and in, particularly with elections, what we're seeing here in North Carolina is a kind of breakdown uh, by generational what I've been looking at. Right now, uh, in terms of voter registration, about a third of voters who are registered belong to the baby boomer generation, that group 1945 to 65, and tied at 27% each are the Gen Xers from 65 to 1980, and then the millennials. They have really come about. And if you look back in time, what it tends to look like in terms of the patterns of composition is that potentially in 2016, millennials will be the same pop, uh, same percentage of registered voters as baby boomers. And that's going to be a huge impact on this electorate. Now, certainly, turnout is much more favored towards the baby boomers. But if you look at millennials and how they're registering, 38% of all the millennials in the voter registration pool are uh, unaffiliated voters. 37% registered Democrats and only 25% registered Republicans. So if I'm a Republican strategist, I'm looking at those numbers and saying, we've really got to appeal to a base that potentially is going to be huge in this state, but our numbers are fairly low. And that's going to be interesting to see how any Republican candidate, whether it's McCrory or the eventual presidential nominee, plays to that new generation coming through. And where you mentioned uh, the Gen Xers, the uh, sort of in-between the millennials and the baby boomers also, uh, what do you know about that, that sort of slice of the pie? Are they... Do they turn out, and, and are they more like millennials, or are they more like uh, baby boomers? Actually, surprisingly, they're almost dead in the middle. Uh, if you look at the percentage who are registered unaffiliated among baby boomers, that's 22%. Uh, I said that 38% of millennials are registered unaffiliated. Registered unaffiliated within Gen X is 30%. So almost right in the middle between the baby boomers and the millennials, and certainly they are showing up not at the same rates in terms of turnout that baby boomers do, and we know by past studies that as voters grow older, they tend to show up. Younger voters don't tend to show up, but they're starting to reach the same numbers, Gen Xers, as well as baby boomers, and so that kind of slice in between is a really good transition between those two generational cohorts. Interesting. And when you talk about unaffiliated, does that mean they float around and they'll vote sometimes for Democrats, sometimes for Republicans? Are they issue-oriented? What is it that 
that we are to read into uh, those percentages of them uh, that are unaffiliated? Well, I think certainly in terms of registration numbers, we don't know how those folks tend to vote. What we do know from exit polls and any kind of massive survey that's done of independents is that they're really faux independents. They tend to say, yes, I am an independent, but if you push them with the next question, well, do you lean one way or do you lean the other way in terms of political parties, they almost split very nicely down the middle and those folks that lean Democrat or lean Republican but identify as independent, they vote for their party just as strongly as strong partisans do. So really about 15% in the studies that I've seen nationwide are people who are true independents. And that's always an interesting dynamic to see if those folks turn up for general elections, which probably about half of them don't, and then how they tend to divide their votes very evenly down the middle. So, you know, the, the registered unaffiliated numbers are surprising to me, but within those numbers, I think you see the partisans, they just don't want to identify with a particular party. Interesting. That is fascinating. Uh, and of course, there, there will be gobs of money spent on trying to reach that 15% of the true uh, unaffiliated, true independent, and, and that will be coming to a TV station near you. Is that fair? <laughs> I think that's very fair, and the interesting question that I have about next year's election is, are they truly going after those un, uh, unaffiliated independent voters, or are both sides basically trying to inflate or expand their base, much more reliable voters, if you know that somebody's a registered Democrat or a registered Republican, they will tend to show up at greater numbers. So it's really, for a campaign strategy, it's one way or the other. It's going to be interesting to see that play out. And of course, speaking of campaign strategy, uh, we are in the early uh, stages of the presidential race, which we've mentioned, and I can't let you go, uh, Dr. Bitzer, without mentioning Donald Trump, who now uh, in several polls uh, seems to be uh, leading the field. Is that a function of so many names in there? And, and uh, he's able to, to, to have some coalescence, but, but probably not a lot of growth? Or what do you make of Donald Trump and his performance so far? Uh, I think head-scratching is probably one way to classify it. It, it is fascinating. Uh, PPP's poll has him in the lead in this state, and there was a national poll that was just released that has him in the front of the entire group nationwide. I think certainly his name identification and recognition is what's driving a lot of this. But, I, you know, if he appears at the first debate, I have to think that the other Republicans are just going to have to go after him for some of the outlandish claims that he makes without really backing anything up. But uh, I know you all do a headliner of the week, but if I had a choice, it would definitely be Donald Trump this week because he has captured the media's attention at least. And there are a lot of Republicans saying this is not the kind of attention we need for our eventual nominee. 
Well, why don't we leave it at that, and we'll go ahead and log your nominee for headliner of the week as Donald Trump. I suspect uh, you, you're, you beat everybody else to the punch on that one. <laughs> So, uh, Dr. Uh, Michael Bitzer of Catawba College, we wanted to thank you for joining us on the Domecast. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And so that was our interview recorded by phone with Michael Bitzer, who you heard uh, went ahead and nominated a headliner of the week, Donald Trump. So that will bring us to a segment that we call Headliners of the Week. We have each of our panelists nominate someone, argue for them, and then we have some fun. Of course, this has been a slow week, so I'm anxious to see who are our Headliners of the Week. Let's go ahead and start with Colin Campbell of the News and Observer. Colin, tell us, who is your Headliner of the Week? I'm going with Ernest the dog, uh, perhaps a little non-traditional choice here. Ernest is a bulldog who was rescued a few years back from a puppy mill uh, that was raided by the authorities and he'd been neglected. He went on to become a spokesdog of sorts for the SPCA of Wake County and befriended Governor Pat McCrory as Governor McCrory and his wife Ann were lobbying uh, for some... Uh, Bill's legislation uh, regulating commercial dog breeders. He went to the governor's mansion. Ernest sadly passed away this past week, and uh, the governor tweeted a photo montage of him and Ernest lobbying for the bill. So we'll see. The bill never quite made it through the legislature. Uh, we'll see if Ernest is more successful as a lobbyist in death than he was in life. Ernest the dog. So did you retweet that uh, that montage? Oh, yeah, it's a beautiful montage. You can, you can look for it on our... Dog in the mansion. We'll, uh, yeah, so you'll have to find uh, Colin. He's a, at Raleigh Reporter on Twitter, so go there and you can find the photo of Ernest the Dog, a nominee for Headliner of the Week. Let's go now to Taylor Knopf. Taylor, tell us who is your Headliner of the Week. So I'm going to nominate the Confederate flag this week because it had quite a stir in North and South Carolina. Um, South Carolina finally took the flag down off their state house after it flew uh, for almost five decades. It was quite a stir in the House and Senate this week, and um, thousands gathered to watch the flag get taken down this morning, and it was transported to the museum, where it'll eventually go on display. Um, and then in North Carolina, they uh, have the Confederate flag on a special license plate for the Con Sons of Confederate Veterans Civil Club. And the DMV actually is out of stock of those plates after McCrory said he intended to stop the production of them after the shootings in Charleston. There, I got the bill. You sounded like you were finished. Uh, so the Confederate battle flag, a nominee as headliner, of course, have been a headliner uh, for some weeks now. And uh, there was uh, significant developments on that this uh, past week. Let's go now to Ben Brown of The Insider. Ben Brown, who is your headliner of the week? I'm going to say the uh, Charlotte Ritz-Carlton. Uh, this week, the hotel's management said they'd refund a uh, controversial surcharge that it put on the bills of people who bought food and drinks in the hotel lounge during the CIAA basketball tournament, which was in March, I believe. Uh, Attorney General Roy Cooper got involved, uh, said his office was, was going to take legal action, that there was a consumer protection issue at play. And this week we learned about a deal where the Ritz-Carlton would refund that service charge, notify customers of any surcharge like that in the future, 
and paid the CIAA scholarship uh, fund 75 grand and paid the DOJ five, uh, five grand. So I'm going to say the Ritz-Carlton in Charlotte. Wow. That was an expensive surcharge. Ended up being. And, uh, of course, got some interest uh, from political types in North Carolina. So the Ritz-Carlton in Charlotte, a headliner of the week. Let's go now to Lynn Bonner of the News and Observer. Lynn Bonner, tell us, who is your headliner of the week? Well, my choice is A.L. Collins, who is the vice chairman of the State Board of Education. Um, he headed a task force that is proposing and, and proposed changes in standardized testing. Now, everybody complains about state standardized testing. Nobody ever does anything about it. But uh, Collins uh, got this task force to do something, something unusual for a government committee, uh, got and got the state, bigger state board to act on it. So my choice is A.L. Collins for uh, forward movement. Forward movement, so testing will uh, essentially a pilot program. Is yeah, that right? an experiment to see if this new idea they're going to try this out on a small number of students this year. See, uh, see what happens. See if it works. And of course, there are a lot of parents who pull their hair out uh, throughout the year over yeah. the testing, and a lot of kids and teachers too. So that was an interesting story for the week. So A. L. Collins, a name. I don't think we've had yet uh, uh, on the Dobecast. Some new characters in the Dobecast. So Dobe um, a lot of new, a lot of new things this week. So let's let's uh, sort those out. And um, I think it was a slow week. Uh, the legislature out of town vacationing, and so uh, in that spirit, we will uh, uh, choose as the headliner of the week, and we'll have to find some audio of Ernest the Dog. Ernest the Dog will be the headliner of the week, and we thank you for listening as we head out, and uh, uh, we appreciate uh, all of your feedback, and we will, of course, see you soon. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.